This is Think Like a Genius. Tread the line of cognitive psychology, neuroscience, persuasion, and so much more than gray matter. Let's dive in as we fall into a world of intrigue. And now, Think Like a Genius with your host, Lance Vantanar. Everyone, welcome to the Thinking Like a Genius podcast. Today, I've got Ted Harrington on the interview with me, and we're going to talk about a number of cybersecurity issues and also cybersecurity in general, but also about Ted's new book that he's just published and launched, and also a couple of topics which are very close to my heart, which is cybersecurity, the hint of psychology, but also thinking differently. So. Ted, can you give everybody a bit of an introduction about yourself, what it is you do on a day-to-day basis, and tell us a bit more about your book at a later stage? So first of all, let's start off with you. How did you get involved in cybersecurity? And then we'll start digging into some of the nitty-gritty things that we tend to be challenged with on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here and hopefully we can talk about some ideas that will you know, help people think differently. I'm all about it. So I'm one of the partners of a security consulting company called ISE, Independent Security Evaluators. And basically companies come to us when they are trying to understand what their security vulnerabilities might be and how they might be attacked and how severe those issues are. And ultimately then how do they fix it? And then how do they prove it to their customers? A lot of people refer to us maybe in the realm of penetration testing and ethical hacking. Those terms have a lot of misconceptions attached to them, but that at least gives you the idea of Mm. the sort of corner of the security world we live in. And that's sort of my viewpoint is it's always looking at how can things be broken, but how can we fix it? How do we need to think differently in order to do that? I think think there's going to be a lot we could talk about here today. And everything that the book is about, which is it's called Hackable, How to Do Application Security Right, all stems from that same experience and viewpoint, which is how do systems get broken? How do attackers think and operate? And ultimately, how do we do things better in order to you know, deal with these challenges? There's one key question which is going to come out quite often, I, I think is now very prevalent because the challenges that we're facing at the moment is there are vulnerabilities that are coming out or being discovered at a rate of not very, very high rate. There have been some very high impact security vulnerabilities, which not only been published, but also been exploited almost immediately. Some of the well-known ones, the Netscaler hack that came out late last year, with the which allowed directory traversal and allowed them to get access to the external aspects of the Citrix Netscaler and then to compromise systems internally. Recently, has been a bunch of VPN endpoints which have been hacked. There's a number of others. I mean, obviously, you've got some of the more public services like WordPress vulnerabilities and plugins and a number of others. There's a recent one which I saw, which is a DNS vulnerability, which came out quite recently in the last day, which allows remote code execution and also remote exploitation. So the challenge is there are a lot of vulnerabilities being exploited almost immediately by criminals and a lot of the criminal elements. Now, what can we do at this stage to prevent some of the issues which are seem to be coming up on a regular basis and in essence mitigate them going forward? Because it's a very big challenge. 
And the fact is that these vulnerabilities are being exploited so quickly as soon as they're published or being made, made publicly available for people to review that it gives a lot of companies very little time to respond to it. A good example is the Microsoft Exchange vulnerability that came out and almost immediately there was a proof of concept and exploit available and they started compromising systems right, left and center. So it's a very, very big challenge. How can companies and technology companies go about preventing that and also resolving that or shoring up the defenses as much as possible? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a really important question and it's a big question and there's so much meat to it and there's there's so many levels to it. But maybe where we can start by thinking about that question is within the context of, you know, your show, right? Mm. It's about how do we think? And one of the things that I'm constantly advocating for is about what's the right mindset, right? How should we be thinking about security? And, and I think that a lot of people, when they think about security, they either intentionally or unintentionally but either way, whichever mode of intent it was, they sort of skip this, right? They think about like, well, look, I just got to get the, the checklist of things I got to go do. What are the best practices? I'm going to go do all the best practices. And yes, there are best practices that we should be pursuing, but really it starts with how we think. And many organizations don't quite know how to think about even their security posture itself. So even the way the question was framed, right, that there are these vulnerabilities and they're quickly exploited. Even the way we think about that maybe should be different because it's not that the vulnerabilities are discovered and then they're exploited. It's they're exploited and that's how they are discovered. Mm. And even just a shift like that helps people understand sort of what our what our role is. And one of the things that that I'm always advocating for is that in order to achieve security excellence, and I use that term very intentionally because I think security is not something that requires achieving a minimum. It, it's a pursuit of excellence. In order to achieve that, it really starts with that mindset of, can we be better today than we were yesterday? And can we be tomorrow better than we are today? I think I raised that backwards. Can we be better tomorrow than we are today? <laughs> and the point of that is that security is this relentless mission of improvement you're never going to be done. You're never going to be completely without security vulnerability, but can we be better? And that's the first place that every organization needs to start because the problem is too big and too complex to be able to say, well, if we just do this one step, one step, two, step three, then the problem solved. It's like, mm, you have to start with your mindset, which is you have to seek this constant state of improvement. You have to seek excellence. And that is where I always recommend people to start. And they don't necessarily think of that. Right. They, mm. they might think of what's the thing I can go hand to my engineering team and say, go do these five things. It's like, well, first, what we achieve is determined by how we think. Mm. That's very much a key thing with a lot of it is mindset. I think it's key to have a different approach to it. And I think the big challenge is getting that message across to not just the technical people who deal with the security and the technical support of a, an environment, but getting that to the business managers, because there seems to be a disconnect between the two. Getting a security message from a technical person to a business manager is completely different than discussing a impact of a security incident from a business perspective. And that is a very, very big challenge when it comes to two different parts of the organization. 
How do you get that disparity to be bridged to allow security as a mindset and a ethos to be accepted in a company? Yeah, talking, you're asking about communication right now. And I think this is one of the most important issues in security today is how do we communicate? And I think there's a lot of people out there who either are going to very strongly agree with me and say, yes, exactly. You're, you're totally right. We need to figure out how to, how to communicate. Or there are people who haven't thought about it that way. I don't think there are many people who say, no, the communication problem is totally solved between the security arm of the company and the business arm of the company. And how those two sort of disparate corners of a given organization communicate is so critical to the success of the security mission of any organization. And I mean, you asked the question before, sort of how did I get into security? And I talked about, you know, this company that we have, but a, a different way I could answer that would be, what was the need that when I started my security career that I felt I could fill? And it was exactly this. I observed that on the sort of technical security side of the house, those people understood the issues in a certain way. And then on the business side of the house, you know, the people who are making business decisions and, of course, are making those decisions based on the things that they understand from the, their technical folks, they think about the world in a certain way. But I saw that there really wasn't a very effective process by which these two groups talk to each other. In most companies, if you go ask the security people about things like the vision for the company, what's the strategic competitive advantage the company has, how does the company differentiate from their competitors, how does the company make money, what increases profit or decreases profit, they might struggle to be able to say those things. And if you ask the business people, what are the things that we're doing that are most effective in increasing or decreasing our risk? Where are our vulnerabilities coming from? They're, they would probably struggle to say that too. And I found that gap as something that I could go fill. And that's really what I've spent a lot of my career focused on doing. I mean, of course, we deliver these ethical hacking services. Mm -hmm. But me personally, as a human being, like the role that I play is how do I make sure these two disparate groups understand each other because they can only win when these two groups are in sync and there's a disparity there there's a discrepancy where these two groups aren't most commonly are not on the same page in most organizations and so that's one of the missions that i'm on is to try to help resolve that what are the challenges when it comes to the communication between technical and business people is the challenge of presenting the information to shift a business person's perspective to understand the importance of the information that's been portrayed, but not have it too technical that it caused people to lose interest? Because that's a very big challenge when you come up to a business person and say to them, we've got this technical issue, it needs to be fixed, because if we don't do it, we're going to have this. The impact is potential PCI breach, or the potential data loss breach, personal data loss breach, which could lead to GDPR fines in the UK or Europe, or can lead to legislator or potential fines in the US. There's a number of regulatory requirements when it comes to California. They've got their most recent legal requirements when it comes out to data privacy. So there's a lot more legislation and legal risk that's coming from not dealing with those issues. So presenting that in a way that business people understand to then make them pay attention to why they need to resolve these issues. One of the challenges I think that a lot of technical people struggle with because they don't know how to translate that risk correctly in a concise way that's very easily digestible. 
The other challenge that I think that needs to be portrayed, and it's something that's mentioned in, in your, your book, is how you present it in a way that the business person sees it as a business opportunity and a benefit to the business. So do you think that's the most important way to lead in with a conversation to get them to start looking at it from a different way? Well, I do. I mean, I'm advocating pretty hard for that particular shift. And I see this as an enormous opportunity. I think you framed it really well. When you look at the way that most people think about security, they pick only really one way of thinking about security. And let me be more abstract for just one second before I answer the question more directly. Human beings, you're interested in the way people think and make decisions and stuff, as am I. And really human beings, but in the business context in particular, we make decisions in one of two ways. We either, and I'm oversimplifying it, you can way like, mm. make these scientific complex terms, but one way is we avoid bad things. Yeah. The other way is we pursue good things. And what I mean by that is uh, security really falls into the let's avoid bad things type of decision making. And so what's constantly happening is that the people in the technical side of the house, the security side of the house, they're staying in the business. Here's a bad thing that could happen. Here's how we get rid of it. I need you to authorize investing time, money, effort, person power, et cetera, in order to solve these problems. And so that's one way we can talk about securities. How do we avoid a bad thing? That's the way the whole field of risk operates. Hmm. But it's really only one way to think about it. And where I see the huge opportunity is the other type. And I really don't see most organizations think about security as how can it pursue a good thing? And this is one of the really key mindset shifts that I'm advocating for. I mean, it's sort of the ultimate outcome that I talk about in my book. And how I got to this idea was, I mean, I guess I wrote about it in a book. So in a sense, you could say it was my idea, but like, it's not my idea is the point, even though it's in a book I wrote, this is what progressive companies are doing. It's their idea. And then I just help them achieve it, which is that if you can actually secure your systems, that's the first step. That is a critical part to this. You can't skip that part, which we can get to later. A lot of companies try to skip that part. <laughs> but once you secure the system, then you can prove it. You can prove how rigorous you've been, how thorough you've been, all the issues you found, the issues that you found, but you haven't fixed and why you're not going to fix them or why you'll fix them later. The issues you have fixed, you know, all of this stuff, ultimately what it does is it helps earn trust. And so now think about the way that companies buy things today. It's almost a prerequisite that if they're going to say license or subscribe to a software system, for example, their expectation is that system will be secure. So that's what the buyer wants. The buyer wants security in the context of the systems that they're paying money for. And yet most organizations really struggle to deliver that. So if your company can deliver it, can in fact be secure, and can in fact prove it, that earns trust with the buyer. That makes the buyer more confident. They, it removes barriers in the sales process and the procurement process. And ultimately, it means that you know, more sales can be accumulated faster. And that's the opportunity that many a boardroom across the world, not even just in the United States. I'm obviously American, as you can guess by my accent. It's not just an American thing. This is like across the world. This is what companies are looking for. And yet very few companies are delivering it. And so my hope is that if we fast forward like five years from today, those boardroom conversations are going to be talking about both types of decision making. Okay, how do we make sure that we're doing the right thing to avoid bad things? How do we reduce our risk, reduce the likelihood we get attacked? Uh, in the event that we're attacked, how do we reduce the impact? But also, how do we take that effort we're already investing 
and turn it into a competitive advantage mm. because that's a huge untapped opportunity that organizations are missing right now. And even if somebody doesn't believe me yet or doesn't want to take advantage of that yet, the the nuggets of it are what's the really important parts take away, which is speak to the business in terms of business cares about. The business wants to make more money or spend less money or ideally both. And right now we only talk about security in terms of how can we make it cost us less money? And instead we should say, how can we convert the money we do spend into more money? And I make a lot of arguments around that in my book and obviously here today. That's one of the biggest challenges. Now, adding to that approach, how do you take a business which has got very little, you could say, service-based products where they're producing either, say, content or they're producing cars, manufacturing, anything of that nature? How do they take that principle of security and present that as a benefit and a good thing as a product to their customers. Because some of the products are once-off sales, once-off items, which will potentially change or stay the same. But how do you present that to your customers in a way that's going to allow them to think of it in a secure and a better way? Because it comes down to customer perception. If the customer feels that it's secure, it's with their interest in mind, their trust and their loyalty is going to generate a lot more business. So how do you get those companies to see that there's a value in that principle for them to spend money on that? Because a lot of times the company's development is very much focused on getting the next product out, getting the next improvement out, functionality, and security tends to be very much an afterthought. It's bolted on once something's happened or something else has gone wrong. How do they build that in as an ethos to drive that as a benefit long term? Yeah, you're so spot on. And, and I think it's important that we understand that there is a difference between different types of buyers. So a consumer who buys things versus a business who buys things, they think differently. And mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately, consumers pay more lip service to caring about security than a business might. A business is going to care a little bit more than a consumer does. And that's really who we're talking to today, right? That, that's who I'm advocating for is companies who sell things to other companies uh, and thus the buyer cares. So you asked the question, how do we build it in? Well, let me use a metaphor. So most mornings after I have my uh, go for my run or do my spin or whatever my workout is that day, I'll make myself a smoothie that has like all kinds of nutritious stuff in it, you know, spinach and nut butters and, and all these things. And when I'm done making the smoothie, I, I pour it into the glass and I do one of two things with the blender. I either clean the blender right away or I clean the blender later. Now, the metaphor here is that cleaning the blender is like security. So those are the two things that someone can do. They can do security right away or they can do it later. Do it now or do it later. So with this blender, in most cases, I'm looking at my day and I'm like, hey, I got a million things I got to go do today. I'm super busy. I'm going to put the blender in the sink and I'm going to go do my day. And then later when I come home after work is over, then I'm going to clean the blender. But what happens is that now I get back to this blender and all that stuff, all those nutritious ingredients have really hardened in the blender. And it's enormously difficult now to clean it. I have to soak it, disassemble it, scrub it, reassemble it. I mean, it's just kind of a pain in my butt. That's what it's like when people think about doing security later is you already took an action and now it's harder for you later. You don't have to do anything right now, but later when you have to visit it, it's a pain in the neck. The other way I could do it though, is I could deal with security right away. So now I've got this blender, I've just poured out the shake 
And all I have to do is put like a little dash of soap, a little bit of water, run it for 10 seconds, and it literally cleans itself. No scrubbing, no disassembly, no, it's just not a pain in the neck. It does though require me to think about it for a second in the moment. Like I have to think about it when I'm doing it as opposed to later. And that's what building security in is like. So really the distinction comes down to, do you want to do it the easy way or the hard way? Most people want to do it the hard way. They don't realize that's what they sign up for because they're like, well, I don't want to deal with security now. You know, we have to, all the reasons that you just mentioned, we have to get the mm. product to market. We have to see what kind of money it's going to generate. We have to see what our customers say about it. And those are all fair ways to think about the iterative process of improving a system. But think about what building security in means. People think of it as this like really daunting undertaking that's very expensive and it's going to totally blow up deadlines. And the truth is that's that's not accurate. So for example, when you're in the requirements phase, you're saying, what are we building? What problem are we trying to solve? Who are we solving it for? Build your threat model, right? You know what problem you're trying to solve and who you're solving it for. That tells you what the system's going to provide access to. Now, once you know what you the system provides access to, you can work backwards from there to say, well, this type of attacker would want that particular asset for this reason. So now when you move into design, you can start thinking about, okay, well, this type of attacker with this type of resources might attack this system in this way. And think about what the system looks like at that point. It's literally just, you're on a whiteboard. <laughs> you're like, mm. this square points an arrow to this circle. And if you're just thinking about security in that moment, you say, well, that might, that might introduce this type of attack. So instead of the square going to the circle, let's draw a triangle over here. And the square goes to the triangle, then goes to the circle. Oh, okay, yeah, that's a, that's a far better security design. And what did that really cost you? Like literally a few extra minutes of the same people in the room as opposed to, let's say you built that whole thing and you realize, hey, when this component communicates with this other component, there's an enormous security security problem here. We have to completely re-engineer how the system works. That's way, way, way more impactful in terms of investment of time, effort, and money to fix it. So that's the way that I think people should be thinking about security is the earlier you can build it in, the less of a pain in the butt it's going to be for you later. But it does require you have to think about it in that moment. But it's not like it's going to threaten deadlines or it's not going to cost some amount of money that you can't you know, afford to do. It's just about thinking about the right thing at the right time in order to make the right decision. You've touched on a couple of things which I'm very fond of. And one of the thread that I, I picked out of that is it's very similar to uh, systems thinking. So the principle systems thinking is taking a look at how the system functions as a whole and taking a assessment of which of the components work in which way. And if you had to just isolate on one component, just to do improvement on that, you don't know what the interaction is on the rest of the system as a whole. And just working on one part of the system doesn't necessarily mean you improve the security of the whole system as a functional unit. So if you take the example of a car, a car was made up of the engine, the electronics, the suspension, you've got you know, the wheels, the frame, everything else works at a functional system. If you just took the engine and you just boosted the performance of the engine to a dramatic degree, you're putting a dramatic amount of torque through the drive shaft and to the, the powertrain. The possibility is that that increase of performance in the engine can cause performance issues or cause damage 
to your drivetrain or your gear shaft, and it causes a number of other complexities which you're not taking in consideration. Yes, the engine's going faster, but now what you're doing is you're over-delivering power to, to the rest of the, the car as a unit, and you can break other parts of the vehicle. And you can put pressure on the tires, you put pressure on the brakes, because now you've got an imbalance of power between your whole system. And that principle is more or less what you're talking about over there, is understanding how your system functions as a whole. So if you had to put pressure on one part of the system, how's it going to affect the rest of the system? And understanding what the impact is going to be allows you to improve the design of it and to potentially find better ways of managing the whole system without re-engineering the whole thing to an nth degree just to shore up one part of it. And it comes down to the other aspect I think that you, you also mentioned is that designing your thinking. You've got to design how you think and consider the information to better understand what the end result is. Once you realize what your end result is, you can start building in mitigation. You can build in better ways of actually managing it, improving it to a point where it actually gets a whole system functioning in a much better way than just doing one simple fix later on in, in life. Because if you think about it, if you're fixing something after the fact, it's like increasing the power delivery in an engine, but not taking in consideration all the other pressure that you're putting on the rest of the system. You're not taking into consideration the amount of force that the brakes have to deal with. Can the tires deal with the amount of power delivery? Is it going to cause problems for the drivetrain? Can the frame of the car take the amount of torque that's being put through the engine? Is it going to start twisting it? Is the handling going to be compromised? So it's taking a bit more time in how you design and think about your product and your approach to get a better result in the end of it. So it's it's a very big challenge overall to take your time to consider all of these various aspects. And it's, as you said, you have to sit down and, and be a bit more patient and diligent in how you approach it to get the result that you want. Now, flipping that on its side, the other question I wanted to ask you is obviously because of the penetration testing that you're doing, what is it that a hacker thinks like when they're actually viewing a company? How do they think? How do they approach it? Yeah, I love this question because it's uh, it's almost become like a tagline of mine. You know, think like a hacker. That's what we all have to do. And that's the heart, I think, of really effective security. Too many organizations tend to think like a defender, right? Like, okay, where's the attack coming from? I got my head on a swivel, I'm, you know, trying to make sure that I keep all them out. When instead we have to do the opposite and say, well, if I was going to attack myself, how would I do it? And I think the great metaphor for this is if we think about really imagine any professional sport. I often use the metaphor for American football here in America, but it's the, you know the same for football, in, soccer, football in Europe, which is a team when they're going to play another team, they try to understand the strengths and the weaknesses of that team. And they try to come up with a game plan for how they're going to actually attack the weaknesses of that team. And that's one of the things we also have to think about. But what I think an, an important distinction that we should make here is first we should even define what a hacker is because the media has really abused the term and has really taken it to mean just one thing when it means something slightly different than what the media has made it out to be. But you know, any news story is like, you know, hackers did blank. And it's and the story is always hackers did this bad thing. Hackers, you know, attacked this company and stole all these credit cards or whatever it was they did. But what is a hacker? I mean, a hacker is somebody who looks at a system and says, can it behave differently? And that's, I mean, that's the fundamental definition of a hacker. They look at a system, they're creative, they're problem solvers, and they're sort of contrarian thinkers. And they say, it does, it does X, 
can it do Y? Now, the fork in the road comes to motivation. So if someone now says a, a system is supposed to do one thing, but I can make it do this other thing, if their motivation is in some way malicious, well, they're what the media is talking about. They're the attackers. But if their motivation is to find those areas that a system could be abused in order to fix it, in order to improve it, those are the ethical hackers. And that's the world that we all come from, that my, uh, our company and our peers come from, is we're the ethical ones. We're, we're looking at these systems. We're doing the same thing as the bad guys. We're trying to uh, identify the flaws, identify what were the bad assumptions that went into how this thing was built. And can we leverage those bad assumptions in order to create some sort of negative or adverse outcome? And if so, we want to say, here's how, here's how we fix it. And so that's really where it starts from is the mindset is like, what does it mean to think like an attacker or think like a hacker? It's to look at a system, identify what it's supposed to do, and then try to determine, can it do something else? And then ultimately the final payoff to that is where it can do something else. And that delivers a bad thing, of course, turn that around and, you know, mitigate the potential bad outcome. You mentioned something which I find quite intriguing is that you look at it from people's misconceptions and perceptions of how something is supposed to function. Do you get a feeling or a sense when you're looking at a device or a platform that you're going to do penetration testing on to take a look at how it functions and then say, I think this is where there's a potential weakness or this is a way that we can cause the system to be put under pressure to allow us to get access to, to do buffer overflow or directory traversal or anything of that nature. Does that come from a lot of technical knowledge or do you get a gut feeling that comes out from that? How do you, how do you get that sense of potentially where something like that would come out or give you a hint of that? That's a, such a good question. And when I was in the course of writing my book, I had the great benefit of being able to interview a lot of people for the book, both people who are technology leaders or security leaders, but I could also interview the people at our own company. And I vividly remember this one day, this was of course before the pandemic had, had shut down. So we all got to like actually physically go to lunch together. I mean, remember that sensation it was like being at a <laughs> restaurant with another human being. And we're at this ramen place and I'm having lunch with this very, very talented security analyst at our company. And of course, I know what his job is, like he works at our company, but I didn't want to have any of my own assumptions baked into the question. So I said, tell me what you do. And that's the way I asked it. Like, tell me, tell me what you do. And his answer will forever be with me because he pauses and he sort of, you know, imagine you're like steaming bowl of ramen in front of him, and, you know, <laughs> he, he puts his chopsticks down. He sort of like hand on the chin as he sort of thinks about it. And after a moment, he says, well, Ted, my job is to think the bad thoughts and ask the hard questions. And of course, I'm like, stop talking. That's amazing. I start like scribbling down what he's saying. And I'm like, okay, tell me, you know, tell me what you mean by that. And it, it was really interesting in so many ways because he said, well, what I mean by think the bad thoughts is I, you know, he's, of course, this is him talking about himself. He's like, what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to think about how something could get broken. Like it's supposed to do this one thing. What if it did this other thing? And that, of course, takes a degree of experience, I think, to understand how systems work and then shouldn't work. It requires that's a specific type of mindset. Not everybody's necessarily mm. wired to think that way. But that's but what's interesting was that was only part of it. But but it's a big part of it, of course, is thinking those those bad thoughts. Like, how can I abuse this thing in front of me? But the other part, if you can imagine your Venn diagram, you know, like one circle is the think the bad thoughts and the other circle is 
to ask the hard questions. And what he meant by that was he said, you know, my job is when he's working with our customers, he's asking them about how the system works and why did they build it that way? And what's the outcome they're trying to achieve? And how does someone access information? And and by asking a series of those questions and continuing to probe, you get to the areas where you realize, okay, here's where the developer's assumptions appear. And I'm saying developer's assumptions. I don't necessarily mean just the software developer themselves. It could be the leaders of the business who say, like, go build this thing in this way. But somewhere along the way, assumptions about this system are baked into it. And those are the areas where asking those questions of like, okay, so wait, why do you want it to work that way? And that's when you realize this, there's this real distinction between people who build things and people who break things. Because the people who build things don't typically think about breaking it. And so they say, well, you know, to achieve XYZ outcome, we had to put these pieces together in this way because that's the most effective way to achieve that outcome. But the person who breaks it looks at breaking things will look at that and say, well, but because these pieces are organized in this specific way, what if, what if an attacker did blank? And those are always the most exciting conversations, by the way, because I've been in more rooms than I can count where we ask that question, you know, what if an attacker did X? And they're like, oh, no, no, no attacker would think to do X. It's like, <laughs> we literally just did yeah. <laughs> and asked you about it. So if we thought of it, someone else thought of it too. And, uh, and so that's really the way that, that it all starts is like those types of questions. And then of course, there's obviously a very scientific, very technical, very rigorous and thorough process that follows that. But that is really, you know, starting from that viewpoint of how do we think differently than a normal user? How do we think maliciously? And how do we identify where the human injected an assumption and that assumption is what can be abused? And the intersection of those two things, that's really where the magic of security testing lives. And unfortunately, most security testing today, almost everything that the, the term penetration testing has really become so watered down, it means so many different things. The real definition is something really awesome and badass, but what it usually means today is something that's like just running a scanner. And so when someone just runs a scanner and they're not getting the person who's like asking the hard questions and thinking the bad thoughts, then you're not really going to find those really important catastrophic issues. But that's really where it all starts is sort of the intersection of those two ideas. I think that's a really valuable point to highlight is the fact that people's assumptions of how something should function and people's assumptions of how the security is supposed to work is completely different to somebody that sits and really looks at it and starts nudging it to say, well, if this is really supposed to be working like this, then you know, sometimes it's like giving some toys to a kid and just watching what a kid does to it. 10 minutes later, they come back. This isn't working. What do you mean it's not working? I just gave it to you 10 minutes ago. It's like, well, I did this and I did that. It's like, sometimes you look and you think, really? Why? Why? But the, the other thing is probably one of my favorite stories I recount is that if you really want to find out how strong a person's assumption is and their concept of the knowledge of something, repeatedly ask why. Because that question will very, very quickly unearth whether a person has got a very strong knowledge of it and they can answer a lot of the issues that come up out of it. And if you get to that point where somebody becomes really squirrely and they say, well, that's how it is, it's like, okay, now you've got gold because now you know there's some weakness to be exploited. There's a knowledge gap that allows you to work on it. 
because now there's a lack of understanding. There's either lack of technical understanding or there's a lack of organizational understanding because it's not just security testing on the technical side of an organization. It's also security testing the people and the process because if you can sometimes break the process, you can find a way of breaking the system. Or if you sometimes find breaking the process, you can break the people because now that, now that you start triggering panic and you start triggering stress, if you trigger panic and stress in an organization, you've got your way in because now you potentially find other weaknesses and other ways in. And that's a very, very, very big awareness that people have to have is that when you get into a position where you've been either through red team exercises or somebody's trying to break into your system, take a pause, think, take a look at what's happening, assess. Sometimes doing nothing is better than doing something. Yeah. Take your time, look at your data. Data doesn't lie. Data doesn't lie. It's your perceptions that lie. You've got to wait and take a look on what's developing and then take it from there and be willing sometimes to take a risk. That's I think that's also the big challenge is that a lot of people are very, very wary of taking risks, which could potentially cause damage. But the challenge at the moment is that the amount of tax that companies are having to deal with at any given day are becoming so intense and they're so fraud focused that companies are very, very quickly finding that they're under a lot of pressure to try and deal with a lot of things. So it's a, it's a very big challenge to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. Now, getting back to just awareness and also consultancy when you get to a client, what is your biggest takeaway when you get to a client and you've done a penetration test, you've done some hacking or you've done some security work for them? How do you get them to take the lessons on board and work on it to get a result that's going to be long lasting? How do you get that message across in a way that's going to get them to take action instead of saying, oh, this is too much? This is too scary, and they shelve it. How do you get them to buy into the change process to to make improvements to get the benefits out of it? Yeah, I mean that's a that's a really really significant problem that is often people are blind to, and so I'm glad you're asking that question because I think it's so 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 important. And unfortunately, there is a limit to which an outside security consultant can really drive change inside a company. So one of the things that I'm always advocating for is that security really is a team sport. And you really need not only that outside security organization who brings all the reasons you'd want an outside you know, partner, they bring the breadth of expertise, the on-demand talent that you don't necessarily always need staffed fully in-house. There's the independence that they have. They're not subject to the political whims within an organization. But you want internal resources too. Even if it's not a full-time dedicated security person, you at least need someone who will be the champion for security. There's someone who can sort of be the go-between between how the leadership inside the company thinks and this outside entity. So to make sure that these dots really connect, because when there's not that, and it does happen to us occasionally, you know, where we might be working with a company and we do exactly what was in scope and we deliver them the results and they just they just struggle to understand how to how to think about it. And, you know, we, of course, go jump through a gazillion hoops to try to make sure they understand we have all kinds of meetings and we'll send people to their offices and we walk them through the reports and we embed people and like we'll do everything to make sure that they can take action. But ultimately, it does start with they need to want to actually take the action. And I really, really, really empathize with the challenge that a lot of companies face where they're like, 
well, I just got this report and there are hundreds of vulnerabilities in here. And I already have my resources fully committed for the next three, six, 12, however many months. How am I going to deal with this additional thing? And the way to think about that is just triage, right? So if you can imagine you walk into the emergency room, any emergency room, hopefully not many of our listeners go to an emergency room very often, but you know, it happens and maybe they've been themselves or know a family member who has, and you realize what happens in an emergency room is they are quickly determining which of these things are most serious. They're like, all right, is someone actively bleeding? Is there head trauma? Is the person unconscious? They're actually evaluating which of these things need attention right away. And those are the things that get attention right away. What they're not doing is they're not saying, I am now going to deliver care to every single person in this emergency room all at the same time. But that's the way that most people think about their security vulnerabilities is they're like, oh my God, there's you know all these people in this emergency room and I guess I'm just going to like be frazzled about trying to deal with all of them, but I can't possibly deal with all of them. No, they have a way to think about like, what's the most important thing? Focus on that now. And it really stinks when you're the person who has like that twisted knee from the fake game of pickup basketball that you had. It's not life-threatening. You're in a lot of pain. You're at the emergency room, but there's no bone poking through the skin or anything like mm. that. They're like, is this person going to die? No, that person might die. Let's focus on the person who might die. And that's the way that organizations can really think about their vulnerabilities is what's the thing that's going to really hurt us right now? And we, we got to focus on those things now. And then what are the things that we can build into our plan over the coming however many months? And this is another area where a lot of approaches to security don't enable companies to do that. Because again, if you were to go get that sort of just tool-based penetration test, if you just go run a scanner, which I get why people want it because it's it's really cheap. It's really inexpensive mm -hmm. and it happens really quickly. But as a result, you wind up getting this report that has like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of vulnerabilities. The severity ratings are not customized. There's a lot of false positives. And so that would be like having your emergency room filled with people and you don't know and you can't really tell who's like about to die and who's not about to die. And so that's how we are commonly advocating for people to think about. Here's how you deal with your most serious issues first. Then you focus on the lesser serious ones over time. And as long as you know what the different issues are, like going back to the emergency room metaphor with the guy who has the twisted knees and a lot of pain, he's been here for eight hours now, you can finally get around to him as like that, that group that came in that was all like severely in pain and bleeding and bones poking out and all that stuff. Once they're stabilized, you can now turn over to this other person. And that's really the way organizations need to think about it. The triage approach is a very interesting way of presenting the information. It also gives organizations less of a overwhelm to deal with because some of the reports that come in, when you look at it, can be quite heavy to process because you're talking, one, not just about a risk factor, but two, also you're talking about a lot of systems you have to deal with. And it's making sure that you very focus in how the solution is presented so that they can, okay, I can make this small change and that's going to potentially give me an 80-20 benefit. And using Pareto principle of what's a 20% that I can do that's going to give me the 80% benefit, but making sure that you're focusing on the areas which could potentially cause you the biggest either financial risk or regulatory risk, and then managing your risk management and your vulnerability and potentially fixed management based on that. And then just making sure that 
you focus on delivering that because that's a big thing is making sure that you're following up on it. But it's no use just doing a single fix just to resolve a single problem and then forgetting about the whole program of work you need to do on the back end to improve your administration, your basic things, improve all of the basic principles for managing an environment that's going to improve your security dramatically. Because that's a big thing is that majority of the security issues that people tend to face or organizations face is because of poor administration. If you improve your administration just through proper management, you're probably going to reduce large amounts of the risk that you're facing on a day-to-day basis quite dramatically. And it means that you're less of a target than another company. And I think that's one of the other key things is that a lot of people don't realize is that really good quality administration reduces your security by dramatic effect. And then you can start building in all of the other more complex things about ongoing training, ongoing scanning, ongoing automation, but making sure you have the more focused security testing on a day-to-day basis. Or once you've done a code deployment, making sure that you're testing your applications and your systems after a code deployment to make sure there's no vulnerabilities, but making sure that you're building the security during your whole coding process or your delivery process, your development process. So when it comes to the back end of it, there's less of a job to do to try and fix things afterwards. Absolutely. I think the the simplest summary to the wisdom you've just shared, security is a leadership challenge. It's really thought of as a technical challenge, which of course it is in a lot of ways, but it's really a leadership issue. How do we make sure that the right resources are deployed in the right way in order to achieve the right outcomes? And fundamentally, that's that's the truth of it. And it's making sure that its environment is also supportive of security. To make sure that everybody from the receptionist to executives all understand security at a principal level. Once everybody understands security at that level and they've got the behavior built in, then it makes the buy-in a lot easier. Once you get your users to buy into security and they understand security because it's personal to them, because that's the other thing I've found with awareness training, is if you build in security into a person's personal perception of it and their personal security, it's a completely different way of having to manage a situation than a company that doesn't have that built in, where it's not personal. Once you start telling people personally, if you do this at home, it's going to make you a lot more secure, and it means that you're not going to have fraud or you're not going to have security issues or you're not going to have crypto ransomware on your system. But that also works when you're in the office. So you do this at home, it'll also protect you at the office. And again, the situation plays its part where a lot of people are working from home and they're working remotely because of the pandemic. Making sure that you have good security practice and you follow good principles at home means that you also protect your company resources and your company systems as well. Because attackers know that if they attack the people at home, that gives them an inroad into company resources. So it's, again, coming back to thinking, how would somebody think differently to allow them to compromise a system or compromise a person to allow them to get into systems? Preaching to the choir, man. I, I, I'm totally <laughs> with you. How, how do we think differently? I, I love it. I think you summarized it really well. Ted, excellent. Thanks a lot for coming on the podcast interview. I really appreciate your time. And can you tell us what you've got planned for not only the company, but do you have any kind of hackathons or any other kind of public events that you're going to be involved in? Yeah, I'm, I'm myself speaking at a number of events coming up. I've got a session coming up at RSA, which will be virtual this year coming up next month. We run a traveling hacking event series called IoT Village. I have an audio book coming out that's the 
the audiobook version of my book. I've got an online course that's coming out to try to teach these principles. So I guess anybody who's listening, you know, if if this triggered ideas for you, if you want to ask questions of me further, you know, offline, you want to talk about your security testing needs or just learn more about any of these ideas, just go to tedharrington.com and everything you could need is there from where to follow me to upcoming events that I'm doing. And I'd be happy to talk to anybody who has any any issues you want to talk about. That's cool. What's your course going to be about? Give people a bit more an idea about what that is about and what you're teaching people and what you want to get across to them. Yeah, so it will be an extension of a lot of these ideas that I teach in Hackable around, you know, really what are the common misconceptions in security programs? How do we identify them? How do we replace those misconceptions with the correct ways of thinking? So really a lot of the things that we talked about here today, but in a more discreet and actionable way. I mean, obviously it's going to be a, a multi-hour course, probably like seven to eight hours type thing. And I can send you, there's like a promo sign up, sign up code people will be able to have where they can get half off. And then it's part of this whole platform where you get access to an unlimited amount of other security resources as well. So I actually think it would be uh, a really good thing for someone to sign up for. Not only do you get access to my course, but a gazillion other courses too for basically the same price. Excellent. Okay, Ted, thanks a lot for everything and have a fantastic day. Thank you for having me. When you support and review a podcast like this from someone like Lance, it gains more visibility and motivates him to produce more. What topics most interest you? The best topic gains a shout out on the podcast.